0: You're listening to The Top Floor, a podcast featuring critical conversations around property management, community associations, and real estate investing. I'm your host, Sean Forster, an industry trend researcher at Appfolio. Once a month, we embark on a narrative journey into the height of industry disruption. And with the help of thought leaders and change makers, we bring you the insider knowledge that's fueling our industry's future. Now let's turn it over to Megan, who will take us through today's episode.
1: In the summer of 2021, Epfolio ran a survey of workers at property management companies. Our goal was to explore the experiences of frontline staff in the residential property management field to better understand their job satisfaction and what employers can do to hire and retain talented teams. We gathered over 500 responses, more than half of which came from property managers. Of all respondents, which also included leasing agents maintenance techs, and office managers, 70% said they work on site, and 91% said their company portfolios include multifamily residential properties. We asked respondents to rate aspects of their roles on a scale of very dissatisfied to very satisfied. And what we found was most employees are satisfied with their jobs. So that's the good news, but it's not the whole story. Because while many respondents said they're satisfied with their work, We continue to see massive turnover within workforces across every industry, a phenomenon many have dubbed the great resignation, which is a topic we covered at length in a previous episode, why today's hiring and retention challenges are different. We'll link to that episode in our show notes. But to summarize, even before COVID-19 arrived, property management turnover has been an ongoing challenge, and it's only gotten tougher. So what's going on? What is contributing to these difficulties we're seeing with hiring and retaining talent, not only in property management, but across industries? That's what we aim to find out. And the answer has a lot to do with the changing future of work. Today on the top floor, we take a look behind the data with the help of experts. At the mic today, are IREM's current president, Barry Blanton, and Steve Cadigan, LinkedIn's first chief HR officer and a leader within the global talent strategy and company culture spaces. First, let's get to know Barry a bit.
2: Okay, so I'm Barry Blanton, and I am the chief problem solver at Blanton-Turner, which is an AMO management firm based in Seattle, Washington. They started my title with chief problem. I added solver, I thought it was a little more positive, positive. and I am privileged to be the 2022 president of IROM.
1: Yes, you heard right the current president of IRM, also holds the title of chief problem solver. To get things started, we asked Barry about the perception of opportunities available within the property management industry. Since many workers in our survey said they're dissatisfied with their opportunities for career growth, we wanted to know, is there a genuine lack of opportunity or could this be more of a perception problem? Here's Barry's take on it.
2: I also think that sometimes as an industry we have a tendency to be a little tunnel visioned in terms of how we describe what those opportunities are to people coming into the industry. I was talking to some of our superhuman resources management team here at Blanton-Turner yesterday and got some insights which I thought were really helpful and one was that we don't do a terrific job of explaining what other options there are. People think about property management and it's a fine line or a fine lane that they see when in fact there are multiple disciplines within our industry and profession and sometimes people either aren't made aware of what some of those things might be where their passions might be better suited and they can evolve more quickly but they're out there I mean those range from accountants to human resource management professionals to marketing professionals maintenance and facilities management technology finance In my opinion, I think it's a gap perception, and the lack of opportunity might have been exasperated by the fact that we've had COVID, right? So people aren't around each other. There's just not that communication and socializing in terms of what collaborations there may be or other opportunities there may be. But again, as I just said, I think as an industry, we don't do a great job of explaining what we do for a living or all the different areas in this that are necessary to it. I think that the perception is one thing, but I think the reality is we need to talk more. In talking to our folks here yesterday afternoon, it was reiterated that as important, really, as pay for people that are new to the industry or the next gens that they talk to every day is culture.
1: Remember this point, because we're really going to dig into the topic of culture later. Barry also had more to say on what the next generation of workers is expecting.
2: One of the challenges with this industry is it has been an industry that took a little while to get your feet under you and it was one of those things that you learned by assimilation and through experience and that sometimes took some time, some years. Our problem is this talent pool, this next gen talent pool, isn't going to give us years. They they don't do anything in years. The downside to that is sometimes they might make a quick decision that this isn't for them before they've given it a real shot because they haven't had as much exposure to the varying facets of it. So that's something that we're gonna have to figure out. As an industry, because we always did it that way, isn't gonna carry the day anymore. And so what we have to do is instead of looking at it as dues paying, we need to look at opportunities to get them the information they need to get them to stick with it, to give it a really fair shot.
0: That is exactly what we found in the research.
1: Jumping in here is Sean Forster, who you heard from at the top of the episode.
0: Particularly for those younger generations you are just mentioning around, one of the things they're looking for, I think those, a third, are looking for jobs with purpose, jobs with meaning, which I think is exactly what you were talking about. I imagine one of the goals is how do you get people quickly into doing those tasks that they do find meaningful? How do you get them so that they are doing that, they are getting excited sooner than later?
2: Great question. We work really hard to interact collaboratively with everybody that joins us as early in this process as we can, right? I think bottom line is you have to ask people what matters to them. But if we take the moment to ask the question, what matters to you? And really take the moment to understand the answer, then we can try to help put people in positions that they can be successful and together we can be successful.
3: I think there's a lot you can do, and I think that if you do want people to stay longer, if that really is an aspiration for you, showing them the pathways of opportunity, how what they're doing can connect to something else. What are the stepping stones?
1: That was Steve Cadigan, a renowned talent strategist and company culture expert. He let us pick his brain about how businesses at large, not just property management companies, can adapt to the future of work.
3: My name is Steve Cadigan and I am currently an author, a teacher, and an advisor to organizations around the world looking for ways of building more compelling talent strategies.
1: With almost three decades of talent and human resource experience, Steve is a big figure within the space. And he's worked with a number of recognizable companies, including Cisco Systems and Electronic Arts, which creates video games. But perhaps most notable and formative within his career was his time spent at LinkedIn, where he was Chief Human Resources Officer from 2009 to 2012.
3: My opportunity at LinkedIn was unlike any opportunity prior in my career journey. Prior to joining LinkedIn in 2009, I'd mostly worked with big organizations anywhere from 3000 to 40,000 in different industries. And I never worked in the social networking or professional networking industry, if you will. And I never worked with such a small organization. It was about 400 people, only about six years old as an organization when I joined. And the reason I joined was for the very reason that it was so different. And I was looking for a new challenge. And over the course of my career, I'd mostly been involved in trying to shape or tune what people before me had built. And the real attraction to me at LinkedIn was to have an opportunity to really grow a company, leveraging all my experiences and mistakes and challenges that I'd seen other organizations that I'd been a part of face.
1: When Steve arrived at LinkedIn, he saw an opportunity to build something from nothing, as he'd put it. When he looked around, he saw room to grow LinkedIn's talent strategies and practices.
3: And what was another really rare opportunity for me was that I was going to be in a company whose main product was a recruiting solution. So it was kind of career nirvana in a way that you get to practice your craft, which is all the dimensions of uh, human resources, you know, recruiting and developing and coaching and so forth, and also work as a product advisor for the main product of the company, which was a recruiting solution, and even go out on some sales calls sometimes because we were selling to my peers around the world, other chief HR officers and organizations around the world.
1: Indeed, landing at LinkedIn was a big deal for Steve, but it didn't come without its challenges.
3: If I were to try to capture the biggest ones, they were trying to recruit at scale and trying to hire in a career candy store. Silicon Valley at the time and still today, and increasingly around the world, and I think a lot of our listeners are facing that today, people have a lot of choice. And I was trying to hire a team really quickly. In the four years I was there, we went from 400 to 4,000 in the shadows of Google, in the shadows of bigger, sexier brands that could outpay me, outbenefit me, outperk me, outwork environment me every day of the week. And so how do I attract people when I really didn't have the cachet or the sex appeal, if you will, as an employer that other opportunities for the talent that I was going after had. I don't know if any of our listeners have had the experience of being in what we call hypergrowth, but at LinkedIn, we doubled the size of the company every single year I was there, 400 to 1,000, 1,000 to 2, and 2 to 4. And when that happens, I mean, it's a wonderful thing because success is a a good problem to have, but the inertia of the weight of new people and integrating them and new policies and everyone's got to change how they do things to scale to be able to deal with bigger things and bigger challenges was, it never stopped. It was unrelenting. And you kept waiting for that moment to take a breath. And then as soon as you did, like, hey, we need to hire 400 more people in the next three months. like, what? Why didn't you tell me that a year ago? And so it's a high quality problem, as we say, you want problems like that, but hyper growth isn't easy and it was really stressful, but that recruiting and the organizational burden of newness, constant newness and growth were two of the biggest ones that I faced.
1: So, staring down enormous competitors and obstacles, how did Steve strategize to navigate his team and LinkedIn through this hypergrowth period?
3: In the end, we did beat those big competitors for talent. We were able to win more than we lost against many of the great companies that were recruiting and still do recruit in Silicon Valley. And the way we did that was through having to innovate When faced with a massive problem, we needed to hire quickly and we needed to scale quickly or someone we felt like a Google, for example, would steal our solution or come up with their own one and would outflank us. And so what we discovered was the only real lever of real significance that we had was our culture. And we discovered that not because we're smart, not because we were oh yeah, culture is so powerful and it eats strategy for breakfast. We discovered it because it didn't cost us anything. And we realized something which in retrospect seems really obvious, but at the time it wasn't so obvious, which was if we are a professional network, if we are in the business of helping people find their dream jobs, we should be a dream job. We should be the greatest place any professionals had ever been. That was our birthright.
1: There it is again, culture. As you'll recall, Barry told us about company culture as an important driver of employee satisfaction. So much so, he said, culture can be just as important as pay. Looking now to Steve's time at LinkedIn, culture was a huge factor, enabling them to compete, recruit, and hire top talent. Culture can be one of those murky concepts that means different things to different people or elude definition altogether. So I asked Steve to attempt to define company culture for us.
3: I mean, here's how I think about culture and how I would suggest other people think about it. It's why does someone want to work in your organization? If you can answer that question, you're going to arrive at your culture. Why does someone want to work here? What's unique and differentiates you from other environments and other places in terms of how things get done, how people communicate, the language that we use, these all contribute to what the culture is. And with that, I will say, if you don't believe culture is important, don't tell your employees it's important because they're going to smell that. And I've had many seminars with many leaders on this. They're not drinking the culture Kool-Aid. And I say, okay, then why did you tell your employees it's really important? Well, because we read in some management book that it is. I said, okay, because you're doing more harm saying it's important than acting like it isn't. But if it is important to you, I really believe this is the most valuable competitive advantage you have in in a world of massive choice for employees today, in a world where they're telling us they're thinking about leaving, in a world where we're seeing more resignations than at any time since we've been measuring it, who you are as a place to work and what you're all about matters more than ever. And the more you, time you can invest in understanding, well, who are we and why does someone want to work here and what unique assets do we have, it's really important. When I was referencing earlier in our conversation around the struggle that we had recruiting when I was building LinkedIn in a very, very... I mean, this is a career candy store, Silicon Valley. The asset that we had was our culture because I can control it. It doesn't cost me anything. And so for people who are thinking about that, go look at places that you think have a good culture and go talk to those people. How do you think about it? You know What it's not is a poster on the wall. That's not culture. That may be someone who tried to capture it And the fewer words you need to describe what that is, I think the more powerful it can be and the easier it is for people to understand. What I learned at LinkedIn was we had a culture that was defined by two words, career transformation. That's our culture. Simple, right? But everywhere else I worked usually has something like customer number one, you work hard, be honest, be accountable, Those kinds of things, which are sort of a mishmash of values and and culture, if you will. But why does someone want to work here is the best question you could ask to help reveal what that is.
1: Once you've defined what your company culture is, how do you know you've hit the mark? There are a lot of misconceptions about what healthy culture looks like, especially from the outside looking in. Sometimes we imagine that great culture means everyone is happy and there's free snacks or a foosball table, right? But you'd be missing the whole picture, Steve says.
3: I've been in so many organizations where they are so sure and they're so clear with me that, oh, yeah, everything's great here. And then a few weeks in, I've realized "Mm -mm, there's a lot of stuff that's not right. And what happens is if you don't talk about the hard stuff, you're just sort of pushing it under. You're going to create a volcano that's going to erupt and it's really going to result in some really bad outcomes. So. Being able to talk about hard stuff is one of the most important, I think, steps and ingredients of a healthy culture. I don't believe good culture is everyone's happy. I believe that happy is good, but we're here to win and be successful. And sometimes that means hard conversations. Sometimes it means uncomfortable topics need to be discussed. And that means I need to build an environment of trust more than happy. Right, And I had this conversation with a lot of people in the HR world. I say, hey, why is human resources here? And sometimes the response is, oh, to make employees happy. I go, eh, wrong answer. I go, just so happens happy people tend to win more, but the goal's winning, the goal's not happy. And so not losing the forest for the trees. That's what I mean, leading with integrity and having a place where people can be open and honest and having those conversations, it's really, really important.
1: Employees, for their part, are not empty vessels that simply absorb the values around them. When they arrive, they bring with them their own values and goals. A growing share of the workforce says that finding a career that's meaningful and purpose-driven is a priority for them.
3: I think it's a great trend. If the workforce is saying, I want to find meaning and purpose more, in my work, I wanna feel the organization that I'm a part of is doing good in the world. Think about that, that's just such a beautiful thing. I want my kids to feel that maybe more than I did. And so the way I think to consider that in this industry is to really invest time answering the question, what value are we adding in the lives of people? How can we deliver a package of why we exist to our customers and to our employees, to our ecosystem, that we feel really makes a difference. I'll give you a great example. A number of years ago, I was invited by what's called the Thames Water District. They're basically the sewage and sanitation arm and the water supply wing of City of London. And they were going through a privatization process where the government was starting to sell off utilities and spawn them off so that they're more private than publicly owned and this organization was terrified. They're like, Steve, why would anyone want to work for a sanitation sewage company? That's not cool and sexy. And so we sat down for a couple of days with the HR team, with the recruiting team, and then the marketing team joined us. And I asked them, I said, why does someone want to work here? What problem are you solving? And that got us to, we're making the world safe. We're making things safe for children. And that was aspirational, right? So I think it's a really healthy exercise for every organization, whatever industry you're in, to think through helping candidates answer, what's your connection to making maybe people feel safer or having them be in a home that optimizes their life for them to realize the best version of their lives, right? There's got to be an answer to that question if you have a demographic of workers that is increasingly wanting to know what that meaning is about. And that's a really good exercise to go through.
1: generating job satisfaction is a lot like building any long lasting relationship. It takes time, effort, and there has to be enough room for both parties to evolve and grow within that relationship. An important way to keep your staff happy and on your team is by providing available opportunities for them to grow and when necessary, pivot within your company. As a whole, The property management industry struggles to spotlight opportunities for workers to build diverse, rewarding careers.
2: If we as an industry can work to tell our story better and to explain what those opportunities are, I think we're gonna do a much better job of attracting talent, reaching out to talent, inviting them to join this industry, because we're basically competing with the world at large for talent. Let's be honest. One of the things that is amazing to me, Megan, is People don't recognize this industry as an opportunity or an option when they're thinking about what their career move is going to be. And I find that ironic because all one has to do is look out the window. You look out the window and every building you see, literally every building you see is managed. We have the greatest calling card anybody could ask for, and we're not using the calling card because we're not telling the story well enough to remind people there are people Lots of people doing lots of things to manage that that you're looking out the window at. We just don't do a great job of connecting those dots.
1: Connecting the dots, or put another way, communication. When we asked what companies can do to improve their employees' work lives, both of our expert guests cued into the importance of simply communicating with their teams.
2: I think that leaders today need to take the time and the moment to understand they don't do this alone. What drives me really nuts is arrogance. I hear people say, oh, I did this, I raised this company and I got it on my back or whatever. That's not the way it works. It just isn't the way it works. It takes a village, it takes everybody. It takes effort by everybody. And if we can share that recognition sincerely, not just Because, okay, today is Wednesday at 10 o'clock and I have to send this email out to so-and-so because it's Wednesday at 10 o'clock. It needs to be understood because if it is understood, it will be sincere and you're going to want to do it, right? And what's going to happen? They're going to rise to the occasion too.
1: Steve also talked about just how important it is for leaders to show appreciation for their team and truly prioritize their well-being.
3: The other thing that I read when I hear career growth, sometimes... I perceive that people who are saying, I'm not getting enough, that may be code for them to say, I'm not hearing from my leaders enough. I'm not feeling necessarily connected or valued or appreciated. And that doesn't cost much, but a commitment of time, right? Taking the time to do that. In my experience, having been a mediator for more employee manager disputes in my life than I can count. I will tell you that a lot of the way those conversations have gone in my career are blah, 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 my manager doesn't even say hello to me in the morning or doesn't even say good morning to me, which means I just need an acknowledgement for me to feel good. And there's so much that's troubling our workforce that's out of the control of us as employers, right? There's stuff going on at home. We're worried about the education of our kids. We're worried about the health and safety of our elders and or immunocompromised members of our family. But I think that begs the reality check for all of us, which is it's a time when we need to check in with our people more. There's more that could be concerning our people that's blocking their ability to be productive or engaged in delivering value for us. So, yes we've got a service that we need to deliver on, but we shouldn't be checking in with our people way more than we were before because we are still in a a relative crisis right now and people wanna know that you care, right?
1: While you're connecting with each employee and learning what makes them tick, be on the lookout for outside the box opportunities that can get your team engaged, create opportunities for learning and growth and drive job satisfaction.
3: The other thing that I really encourage leaders to think about now is we all have jobs that need to get done. The lights need to come on, the floors need to be cleaned and so forth, but are there other projects that you can give someone that gets a stretch assignment, maybe something out of the norm that are going to allow you to see if someone has the capability to take on more or maybe deliver value in unexpected ways that you weren't sure or you didn't know that they were capable of doing. And I think this kind of cross-training, this new project assignment methodology, I think is a really great way to sort of spark people. The one way that I've found to drive people out of your organization is to force them to do the same thing again and again and again over a long period of time. And they just feel stale and tired. And in a world that we're in right now that's changing really quickly, I think people want from an employer... They want to be made better for the future. They wanna know that you're investing in them, right? And even if necessarily you don't have a promotion or a step up in their career right now, I think what you can do is feed it with new experiences, new projects, new assignments, and or new classes or investing in their education so that you are building them better. It's the best investment you can make in your organization is to make people better.
1: To better retain employees, leaders need to create opportunities for people to grow and evolve. They need to check in with their teams on a human level and show them that their contributions don't go unnoticed. Now if all this sounds easier said than done, you're right, and there's a good chance that implementing these changes at your company might amount to a big cultural shift. So instead of biting off more than you can chew, take smaller steps. Take Steve's suggestion for more check-ins, for example.
3: Do surveys, ask questions, do little pulse surveys. I mean, I'm not talking about, hey, spend a half an hour checking the box, but in a similar way, if you ride in an Uber or a Lyft and you get out of the car, the first thing that happens on your mobile phone is you get served, a was that a one to five star or zero to five star, right? Another great question I really encourage organizations to ask their people is, are you as productive as you can be? And if not, what can we do to help you be more productive? Sometimes people are not as productive as they can be and they don't tell their leadership because the leadership's not asking. And if you let your employees know, hey, I want you to feel like a sense of satisfaction, be as productive as you can be. What's in your way? I don't have the right tools or I don't have access to the right things that I need to get my job done or it's too noisy here or the time of day you're asking me to clean this. There's always a a lot of folks that are coming and going. Maybe there's other ways that can be designed. So I think engaging employees in designing work is a really helpful way to drive up that sense of they're a really valuable part of your enterprise versus just an order taker. I think if we look at them as order takers, that's how they're gonna feel.
1: Let's pause here for a second. You may be saying to yourself, in order for my business to run properly, there has to be someone to do the busy work, the order taking, as Steve put it. The small, repetitive, but crucial tasks that enable the rest of your organization to function. Of course, we're not suggesting simply getting rid of these tasks. That's out of the question. Instead, think about how you can strategically apply technology to lift that burden from your team. Here's Barry.
2: There comes a day where technology becomes the tool for people to use so people can do that that people do best. And technology is relied upon to do what technology can do best, which is a whole lot of that repetitive, volume-type business.
1: What does this mean for property management companies? Well, dedicated software can eliminate or significantly reduce those repetitive, time-consuming, and often unfulfilling aspects of the job. By doing this, employees can provide faster service to residents. They can focus on the bigger picture, more rewarding, and more meaningful tasks. For example, take maintenance tools that use artificial intelligence. They follow guidelines set by management to judge the level of urgency for each request, automatically respond to residents and dispatch pre-approved vendors. Most multifamily operators are no stranger to being woken up at 3 a.m. with maintenance requests and tools like this are helping property managers live more normal lives. Other examples of property management technology that makes work less manual and more meaningful include AI-enabled leasing assistants that can handle all prospect inquiries. They respond efficiently to casual inquiries and funnel serious prospects down to your leasing staff. There's also AI data entry tools that spot spikes in utility bills, find accounting discrepancies, and even parse bills and leases to compile income statements. an added bonus of incorporating more technology into your operations is the flexibility that it affords your team. Today, flexibility in the workplace means giving employees space to focus on the work itself rather than when, where, and how they are doing it. A consolidated property management platform gives your team the ability to tackle off-site tasks from anywhere, including their home, which can make the day-to-day of property management less stressful and provide a better work-life balance. In the Appfolio and Irem survey, 29% of respondents said being given more flexibility with schedules has improved their overall job satisfaction. And that's the goal. How can you use technology to make your team's jobs more rewarding? As Barry points out, it's critical that technology works for you and your team not the other way around.
2: I think where it seems like we're at right now is getting technologies to talk to each other so you don't have to keep loading the same information in to all these different systems and getting these. We're not quite there yet. That's the vision, the dream of tomorrow. It's gonna happen. But I think that um, that's what technology is, where we're going with it. What does technology really mean? To me, it just means how do we make the world better? right? It isn't about high-tech sci-fi stuff. It's about if technology is good, it makes the world better for everybody that it engages with that technology. Everybody. It's not one end user, it's all stakeholders. How do we make it better for everybody? And if it isn't better for everybody, let's not do it.
1: But before you unveil your plan to digitally transform your property management company, Be sensitive that some on your team may feel hesitant about this change. Here's a tip from Steve on how to broach that conversation.
3: I do know from talking to a number of folks in the property management industry, I mean, whether it's new software or new technologies or new systems and tools that people can use to offload some of those things. But here's the one point I want to make around thinking about the implementation of new technology, new systems and tools. The language you use when you do that is really, really impactful because a lot of people that I'm dealing with today, employees are telling me, well, my company's going through a digital transformation and that's code word for my job's going to be eliminated or I'm not important. And I, I love the way you frame this, which is look at the new technology opportunities and communicate that with employees in such a way that it's, hey, If we can make you more productive, make you feel more impactful, make a bigger difference, maybe in a shorter amount of time and take off the stuff you don't like doing, would you be interested? And people go, yeah, okay, we're going to call that digital transformation, but that's why we're doing it, so that we can make your job really more impactful and you could do cooler stuff, right? Versus a lot of companies who just want to talk about the new tool and the new technology and, hey, the consultant said we need to do this. And the employee's like, they're not talking about me. And so be careful how you're having that, how you're thinking about that and how the conversation goes with your staff when you are going to be adopting these new things to try to alleviate the repetitive stuff that isn't very value add for your employees to be doing.
1: A big warm thank you to Barry Blanton and Steve Cadigan for speaking to us for this episode. Although right now is a challenging moment, not just for property management, but across industries, it also presents an incredible opportunity to make the future of work more human. If you're in a position of leadership, focus on changes that make your company a rewarding and meaningful place to work. This does so much more than just improve retention and employee satisfaction. It's also laying a strong foundation for continued growth as the future of work as we know it evolves. Be sure to check out our new webpage for the Top Floor podcast, where you can subscribe for monthly updates and access bonus content like research and articles. You'll find them at appfolio.com forward slash the top floor. That's appfolio.com forward slash the top floor. There, you'll also be able to find the 2022 Appfolio Property Manager hiring and retention report that we've been mentioning all throughout today's episode, which you can download for free. Speaking of which, if you want to learn more about the research on employee engagement and satisfaction that we created in partnership with IREM, you won't want to miss the latest episode of IREM's podcast, From the Front Lines. It covers critical issues in real estate management in short, digestible episodes to help you run your business more effectively. This week, Appfolio's Stacey Holden discusses the results of the 2022 Appfolio Property Manager Hiring and Retention Report. Dive deeper into the implications of the research and what this means for property management companies by listening to IRMs from the front lines on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Before we go, we wanted to end on an inspiring note. Here on the top floor, we're big believers that the future of work benefits everyone, from the CEO right down to the people on the front lines, engaging with customers on a daily basis. As we wrap up season two of The Top Floor, we'll leave you with this.
3: I think that the future of work is about being more human. The future of work is What can I do as an individual that differentiates me from a computer, an AI, or some automation? It's my ability to communicate. It's my ability to talk about hard stuff. It's my ability to read body language. It's my ability to inspire people and be a part of a team, right? And so that's why I really believe when I think of the future of work that it gets me excited, it's about doubling down on those, some people call them soft skills. I think we should refer to them as power skills because they're really hard to build. That's how I think about it, but also embrace the fact that some of these new tools and technologies can really allow us to do more impactful stuff and make a bigger difference.
0: Thanks for listening to The Top Floor. For more information about today's guests and additional property management insights, visit us at atfolio.com. And don't forget to subscribe to The Top Floor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.